Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 19 cents. That's what the bill amounted to, the sum printed on the invoice that my friend Alex had received just a few days before his college graduation. Having spent four years at the university and countless thousands of dollars for a bachelor's degree, the letter informed him that he owed 19 cents to the university library for an overdue book and that he would not receive his diploma until the balance was paid. Alex passed the invoice around the dorm room during our last night of college and we all had a good laugh. I mean, it was patently absurd, ridiculous. We realized that the statement had been issued by a computer, something automatically generated and mailed out when it detected the 19 cent deficit in his account. But even so, this was crazy. Alex, for his part, was a bit furious. Hadn't he given them enough? Hadn't he already spent well above the going market rate he complained to live in a small dorm room with cinder block walls and cold linoleum floors? Hadn't he already paid a substantial sum for a meal plan that consisted of boiled hot dogs and cheap deli meats? Hadn't he already borrowed a small fortune for a degree in philosophy, which would almost guarantee that he'd never be able to get a decent job and pay back what he owed. On the morning of his graduation, Alex marched to the bursar's office, adorned in his cap and gown, as he pulled out his checkbook. He was not about to pay the meager sum with a dime, a nickel, and four pennies. That would be too easy. He slowly wrote out a check instead, ensuring that someone would be inconvenienced with the effort of cashing it, maybe even saddled with a processing fee, if God really had a sense of humor. It'd take some time for it to clear, though, and when he walked the stage that afternoon, they handed him another copy of that invoice instead of his diploma. 19 cents. Couldn't they have just let it go? Debt is a curious thing. It's not bad in and of itself. Borrowing money allows us to afford things that we otherwise couldn't pay for in cash. A car, a house, an education. Of course, debt can also get way out of hand. That's what led to the predatory lending schemes of the subprime mortgage crisis and the subsequent economic fallout in 2007. It's also why people take out 84-month car loans that all but ensure they'll owe more than the car is worth in just a few years. And it's why a lot of people are drowning in credit card debt and student loans. For my part, to be honest, I owe more money than I care to admit. While I've never gone overboard with my credit card, my wife and I do have two car payments, a substantial mortgage, and so much student debt that I won't finish paying for college until my nine-year-old son graduates from college. 
if he graduates, because he has a tendency to lose library books. But in all seriousness, tuition typically increases at 8% per year, twice the rate of average inflation. And since I graduated from college, according to the US News and World Report, in-state tuition for public universities has increased by over 200%. I don't know if we'll be able to afford to send our kids to college or if it'll even be worth the cost. And frankly, it's hard to save money for your kids' education when you're still paying for your own. All in all, that 19 cents is starting to look pretty reasonable. Debt forgiveness is a popular subject these days, especially when it comes to student loans. Most people don't know this, but the federal government has a public service loan forgiveness program. If you work for a nonprofit organization for 10 years and you keep up with your payments, they will forgive the remainder of your loan. My brother, who works for a nonprofit foundation, took advantage of this. Just about any not-for-profit work will suffice unless, alas, you work for a church, which is specifically spelled out in the fine print. Leviticus, like any legal document worth its salt, is filled with fine print. A casual reading suggests that all debts were forgiven every 50 years during the Festival of Jubilee, their balances struck from the ledger. But you've got to read the fine print. It's a bit difficult because reading Leviticus feels like going to a house closing without a real estate lawyer. It's a whole lot of technical details, clauses, and nearly inscrutable terms. The sort of thing most folks sign off on without ever really reading. But if you look closely at what's described here, the debts are not actually erased. Rather, any land that is leased in open country beyond city walls is released at the time of the Jubilee when the lease expires. In Leviticus, it states that when you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the Jubilee. The seller shall only charge you for the remaining crop years. In other words, leasing agreements were structured around the Jubilee. You could not take out a loan for more than the number of years until the next Jubilee. Now, I apologize if I'm boring you with the details. I know this is not exciting stuff. I'll let Dr. Art Lindsay, the Vice President of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, summarize it more succinctly. The Jubilee Declaration might be analogous to a mortgage-burning party, he writes. You would celebrate with friends that this significant debt was paid, but you would not thank the bank for forgiving your debt. The debt is not forgiven or canceled because it is paid. I would love for someone to pay off my mortgage or cancel my debt, but that is not what happened at Jubilee. All right, so what did happen at Jubilee? Well, what happened was a restructuring of society around its most deeply held values. For the ancient Israelites, those values were fairness, equity, and the sanctity of the land that God had promised them. So they set forth laws 
the insured fair loan terms while also ensuring that any land classed as open country cannot be sold in perpetuity because it belonged to God. As it says in the text, according to God, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine, with me you are but tenants. So in short, their public policy reflected their values. But what about our values? What about our public policy? Back in 2009, I served as a delegate to the United Church of Christ's General Synod, our denomination's biannual meeting. I was asked to chair a committee that was working on a resolution that was titled simply an economic justice covenant. Now looking back at the language of the resolution, it reads as follows, forgive me, this is a bit of a long block quote. As Christians, we sing the hymns of justice, equality, and unity. We pray for the well-being of all God's children and we continue our activities to feed the hungry and house the homeless. But all the while, we watch the gap between rich and poor in our own nation and in the world become ever wider with many millions left in poverty. Some of the causes are benign, the result of differing natural resources. Some of the causes are the result of the global economy and the incessant desire for corporate profits. Some of the inequalities are the result of long-standing and systemic racism, sexism, and xenophobic fear of the stranger. Others are simply rapacious, not unlike Amos's searing prophecy, unconscionably low wages, exploitation of workers with no recourse, unfair pricing of many necessities, luring of the poor into unbearable debt, and the pillaging of the earth's resources." End of quote. As I stood at the podium to present this resolution for a vote, there was a clamor at the back of the auditorium. A group of protesters had begun threading their way through the crowd, singing and shouting something that I could not quite understand. As it turned out, they were not, as I initially thought, protesting against economic justice, but rather something else about denominational governance that had been voted on earlier that morning that they were upset about. Being interrupted, I confess, I was a little bit annoyed. Only in the UCC, I thought to myself, would people protest their own national conference? But looking back, I think there's a lesson to be learned here. These protesters were angry about how the denomination was choosing to govern itself, just like we argue these days about politics and the merits and pitfalls of capitalism and socialism and everything in between. And in the process, they ignored economic justice, or at least they ignored me while I was trying to talk about it. But politics is not an end unto itself, and there is no form of governance that can save us if we don't take economic justice seriously. As people of faith, we are called to care about things like compassion and fairness and equity. Not the equity you get from owning a house, but the equity that ensures that everyone gets to have a place to live and a living wage and access to education and health care and a fair shot at the American dream. 
We lost a champion for these causes this week with the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She worked tirelessly, especially on behalf of women, to ensure that people were treated fairly and with respect, and she always put people before big corporate interests. That gave her a reputation in some ways for being anti-business. But I don't think that's fair. She wasn't anti-business, she was anti-exploitation. Business doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. You can turn a healthy profit without taking advantage of people. Capitalism, like debt, is not inherently bad, but when it's divorced from compassion, when we try to squeeze every last dollar and cent, every percent of interest that we can from each other, when the bottom line is the only thing that matters, well, then we have a problem. This is a congregation of generous people. You give so much of yourselves all the time in the service of others, regardless of your personal finances or your politics. I'm only here talking to you right now because you care about something bigger than yourselves and you're willing to invest in it. But I do worry about greed being something of a national pastime in our wider culture, like football or Netflix. Greed is good, the tycoon Gordon Gecko famously said in the film Wall Street. And even though he was supposed to be a caricature, I think a lot of folks believed him. A couple of years ago, I was strolling through Target when I saw a remarkable sign hanging next to one of those little motorized cars that kids ride around in. I had to blink to make sure I wasn't imagining things. The sign read, clearance, save zero dollars. The advertised sale price was listed at $179.98. The original price, $169.99. So not only would you be saving zero dollars in this so-called clearance, but you'd actually be spending 10 more. Now that's what I call an outrageous value, zero percent off. Now, I don't know if this was some kind of mistake or some disgruntled employee's idea of a joke, but it's a fitting symbol, if there ever was one, for the kind of sentiment that governs too much of our society, the drive to take as much as I can from you while offering as little as possible in return. To quote Leviticus, you shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God. And to quote Jesus, if anyone asks for a coat, give them your cloak as well. Give to anyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. It's an interesting turn of phrase. The Bible does not condemn lending or borrowing, and Leviticus doesn't actually demand that all debts be forgiven in the Jubilee year. It doesn't even forbid charging interest so long as it's a fair rate and you don't charge your own sister. Scripture does not make unreasonable demands of us. We've all got to earn a living. 
But the gospel does demand that we love one another and that our laws reflect our highest values until the day when all of our debts are redeemed. Amen.